Hi, friends. Welcome back to With Great People, the podcast for high-performance teams. I'm Richard Kasparowski. This episode is an interview with Vashko Duarte. Vashko is a longtime Agilist and the host of the Scrum Master Toolbox podcast. Vashko talks about his journey as an Agilist, starting with the time he did Scrum exactly by the book. And it turned out to be the best team of his life. To support this podcast, sign up for my newsletter at kasparowski.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, Vasco. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you've been on my podcast, so I guess it's now my <laughs> turn. Uh, and it's an awesome topic you have for the podcast. I'm really excited about participating. Oh, cool. Cool. Welcome. Yeah, yeah. I had a great time on your podcast. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us here. So um, to get started, will you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so uh, my name is Vasco Duarte. You can call me Vasco because that's what most people around the world do. (laughs) Um, As I usually say in my podcast, I'm a polyglot when it comes to mispronouncing people. So no worries, you can call me whatever it sounds like in your language. That's perfectly fine. And uh, I've been an Agilist. I've been practicing Agile since 2004. There's actually a, a nice story about that. We'll get into that later. And I'm also the host of the Scrum Master Toolbox podcast, where I interview every week a new Scrum Master, and we go through five questions that uh, Scrum Masters need to face every day. And, and we get, you know, 52 different answers for every one of those questions per year. Yeah, it's really nice. This kind of feels like a love fest. I really, I really love your podcast. I loved being on it. And it's, it's, it's so awesome to have you here on mine. Thank you again. Um, so this podcast is about high-performance teams, and I, I ask every guest to tell me about your best team ever, the best team of your life. Uh, what can you tell us? Can you identify that team, and what, what can you tell us about it? Yeah, so um, because I host a podcast, I, I prepared. <laughs> <laughs> so I have my notes here. Um, yeah, so this was a team I helped build Um but that was not the reason why it was good. Uh, I'll, I'll give this team a name. Um, mm-hmm. we, I don't think we called ourselves a name at that time, but I'll give it a name here for the sake of making it easy, easier to refer to. Uh, so let's call them the pioneers. So right. they, they were all new. Everyone in that team was new to the company and they were totally new to the process. Uh, actually, it was my first scrum team. Oh, the first scrum team. Now, notice that I said my first Scrum team. At that time, I already had eight years of experience in the IT world. Right. But my first Scrum team was definitely the best team that I've ever worked with. Oh, cool. Um, So how how long ago was this, that this was your first Scrum team? This was 2004. That's when I got started. We were, we we did the the whole transformation in two weeks. It was literally, you know, get get on board and two weeks later, boom, you're in a Scrum project. And at the time I was actually building the team. So a lot of the team members uh, came from the outside. Later on, a couple of internals joined. But when we started, there were only people who joined, uh, you know, as new first-time employees. Right, and these were not like easy people or something. It it wasn't like this kind of teams where everybody is like happy from day one. It was Hmm. it was tough to get it started. There wasn't agreement about who to hire. Um, The 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 people were. I mean, they were all nice people, but they weren't uh, this these people who would say yes to everything. That was not. None of them had that kind of personality. These were people Mm -hmm. who who stood for their ideas and 
And we had, uh, even from the start, we had pretty heated debate about how to do Scrum and uh, what kind of technology to use, what kind of architecture to use. All of them were outspoken. Yeah. Um, and even, this is a funny part of the story, during the team formation, one of the team members got fired Ooh. by the team itself. Oh, wow. <laughs> fired by the team. I've always wanted to hear a story about getting fired by the team. You know, it's a, it's a really common question that people ask. What if somebody is sort of like a freeloader uh, and, and how do you handle that? Yeah. Uh, so the, the, the cool thing is that this team, they were all outspoken. And, and at some point, there was this new team member uh, who obviously had gotten the job, not because he wanted it, but because mm -hmm. he probably either needed it or maybe he was just trying out the new position, whatever. Uh, he definitely wasn't being productive. The yep. team got together. They came to talk to me and say, hey, Vasco, um, we have something to talk about. And it's not very nice. Uh, <laughs> we, we talked about it for a while. And they said, look, we're, we don't think that this new team member, uh, let's call him Ryan, we don't think that Ryan is able to pull his own weight. Um, so I think we should, you know, consider firing him. Mm -hmm. And we did actually, we had a conversation with Ryan. We established a new set of goals and say, Hey, mm -hmm. during the next two, three, four weeks, we need to, you know, get better at this. And when you need help, you need to ask for help. You can't just hide and you know, yep. wait for the end of the sprint to say that you didn't do anything. Right. And uh, things didn't get better, so didn't get better. So we eventually ended up fire, firing this um, this Ryan person, and uh, it was a tough moment. Uh, mm -hmm. But I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, I, I'm still in contact with him. It wasn't a bad thing, I don't think. I think it was a good thing both for the team and for Ryan himself, who found another job doing stuff he uh, he was familiar with and loved okay. to do already before he joined. Uh, oh, good. I, I love it when um, when exit stories turn out like that, and it seems like they almost always do. Like they're 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 good for the the team that remains behind, and they're good for the person who left. Yeah, I mean, if if Ryan had stayed, it would have caused resentment towards the you know the, yeah. the rest of the team would be would be resentful and and not very cooperative with him. So right. I think it was the the best for everybody. Yeah. All right. Now. I hope this story didn't didn't prime you uh, in, a, in a sort of negative way. I want to know about getting back to that best team ever and, and the story of, of the rest of the team that remained. Uh, if you take yourself back to that time, okay, so we'll, we'll rewind back to 2004 and you're with this team, maybe around the time they're spinning up, maybe during the time that you were together doing the work over the next months or years, I'm not sure how long it was, maybe we'll find out. Um, as you re-experience that, Tim, could you could you summarize the experience in one word? Yeah, so I thought I thought long and hard about this, and uh, it's it's not that easy. Uh, but you know, knowing what I know now, not necessarily the word I would have used back then, but knowing what I I know now, uh, the word would be flow. Flow. Yeah, and and the reason for that is that no matter what we did, things always happened. Now, mm -hmm. when I say things happen, that doesn't mean that everything we did was successful or that we did everything we planned to do. But, but it, it was clear that whatever we put our minds to, we were able to achieve sooner or later. Um, uh -huh. I, I'll give you a, a small hint of how this went. Uh, actually, this was a completely new product 
for the company with a completely new business model for mm -hmm. a completely new set of customers. And we pulled it off. And this had not been done before, except once in the life of the company. So this was a small team. We were, when we got started, we were like five people, and then it grew up to 10 people, but uh, it, it was a small team and, and we actually made it happen. And that included mm -hmm. marketing material, conferences, visiting customers, uh, all of the stuff that many teams actually are used to get through the product owner, right? Right. Right. So when, when you say flow, different people mean different things when they say flow. When you say flow, what, what's your meaning? Uh, by flow, in this specific context, I mean, you know, when you're, let's say you, you, you love to write and you get up in the morning, you start typing. Uh, and then when you look at the clock, it's four hours later and you go like, oh my God, four hours just went by. Right. And, and that's how it felt to be in that team. Like we got into the room and we started working and soon enough it was evening and we had to go home. Nice. Nice. So, and it was sort of a, a sense of group flow, not, not just individual flow. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Now, okay. So this, this was your, your best team ever. You got some, uh, this, this, this feeling of flow always feels good. So there's one one way that you could subjectively say it was a great team. What else do you have uh, for for how you knew it, it's for how how you know it's the best team ever? Uh, what other subjective opinions or feelings? Anything objective? Okay, you've got something objective. You shipped that you shipped that product first time or yeah, second time it ever happened in that company. What what else about how how you know this was a great team? Yeah, so from the objective uh, point of view, of course, a new product for the company, uh, a product that went from uh, not existing to 10 million in revenue in four years. So, wow. you know, building a 10 million business in four years is, n is not a, a, a fit to sneer at. And yeah. definitely a small team has to go through a lot of trouble to, to be able to pull that off. Uh, so that, that's on the objective side. Mm -hmm. uh, but but also on the subjective side, I mean, the team had a great atmosphere. Uh, whenever you enter the room, you immediately felt that something was happening. Uh, they were all always uh, receptive to people that came into the room, but they were also pretty clear about setting their own boundaries. I mean, they started silent hours in that company. And from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., nobody was allowed to disturb anybody. Uh -huh. Right. If you wanted to talk, you would email first and then meet outside the room and, and you wouldn't disturb the rest of the team. It was also the first team in that company that had a co-located room. So we uh -huh. had a room just for ourselves. We had whiteboards everywhere. Um, uh, everybody was sitting next to each other. So it was easy to, to, to get at and, uh, you know, ask questions and, and get feedback. Um, it, it was the first cross-functional team in that company. It included business people, product people, design people, testers, uh, developers, and even uh, infra infrastructure people. Mm -hmm. This is 2004, so none of this <laughs> DevOps thing existed. Yeah. Uh, but we already had infrastructure people working with us because we understood that you know if we want to get this done, we need to start bringing in some of the responsibility into the team. And how do we do that? We get more people we get people to work with us right yeah so uh in, in a lot of ways it it kind of uh spoiled me uh <laughs> as to what a team is and, and how scrum should work so um 
uh, I've never been in a team that worked so well as that team uh, after that. And uh, today is 2019. So that's 15 years later. So I have 15 years more experience. And that one experience has never been repeated. Oh, that's fascinating. So you had this great, great first experience and, and really, really solid evidence that this was a great team. Just, just the business result itself is, is solid evidence. And, uh, actually, the, why you say solid evidence, uh, I want to tell a story about my own journey um, oh. that, that also helps uh, understand why this team was so important for me and still is important for me. I mean, we're still in touch. People are all over the world. One guy's in Canada, another guy's in California. I'm in Finland. A couple of guys joined a consulting company. Another guy started his own company. So the, the team is all over the world now. Um, but it's still very important for me, and we're still in touch. There, there were definitely you know connections created at that time. Yeah. But, but uh, regarding the solid evidence that Scrum and Agile works, um, uh, I've said this several times, and uh, you know coming. Uh, completely out of the closet, as it were, I did not believe Agile could work. Uh -huh. <laughs> when I got started, I was a skeptic. And yeah. I did that project with the intent to show that Agile doesn't work. No way. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I actually, I, I, I was very structured about it. We did it by the book. We took Scrum as defined by Middle, uh, Biddle and Schwaber in their Agile software development with Scrum, the black book. Yeah. Right, the first book about Scrum. Yeah, we 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 did it exactly as described there, and when we started doing it, it became obvious. Wait a minute, this actually worked, <laughs> and this is better. Like having the team make decisions on their own is better than having a project manager do decisions for the team. Yeah, having the team. Uh, uh, I'll tell a story about that in a, in a minute. Having the team own their physical space is better than having to go through this committee of, you know, right. uh, uh, the building management people that want to know exactly where the tables go and all of that. Yeah. It was so much better than anything I had experienced, but I started it as a skeptic. I didn't believe it would work. Interesting. Interesting. And, and so you did it by the book. It was sort of like a, a well-controlled experiment. So if it failed, it wouldn't be because you weren't doing it right. Yeah, absolutely. And it worked so well that actually that is my first no estimates project. Now, I, I know that uh, some of the people listening to the podcast might have heard about it. Uh, just don't go to Twitter to learn about it, right? <laughs> don't, don't use Twitter for that. Anyways, uh, it was the first project where I discovered that estimation was not only useless, but it was actually actively negative in terms of huh. team collaboration and stakeholder trust. So we stopped estimating altogether, but we were still able to tell people what's going to be ready and when because of a simple technique I developed back then that is now a core part of the no estimates approach, which is to just count the number of stories. Just count the number of stories. So, so let's let's pause there for for a moment. Wait a minute, Vashko. I thought I thought estimating was one of the elements of Scrum that you said you were doing exactly by the book. What do you mean you weren't estimating? <laughs> and we were estimating actually at that time. I remember reading Agile um, uh, Estimation and Planning by yep. Mike Cohn. Uh, definitely a book that influenced me a lot. 
Yeah. Uh, I would never recommend that book to anyone today. <laughs> if you want to read anything about estimation, read about how the uh, Egyptians built the pyramids, no estimates, uh, or how the Rome, Romans conquered, uh, well, half of the known world, most of Europe and a lot of Asia, no estimates. Uh, there's a story about Caesar going to Germany and, and they're being attacked by a certain number of local tribes and, and they have to create a way to win that particular battle. And they actually build a bridge. This is, you know, this is about 1,700 years ago. They build a bridge in less than a week to cross the Rhine. Now, anyone that knows a little bit about geography knows that the Rhine is a huge, powerful river. Uh-huh. No and, machine. And nobody has ever built a bridge across it in a week before or since. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So, so that 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 for me was important. Uh, you know, kind of a a moment of realization. Not because I didn't want to estimate. On the contrary, mm -hmm. I was pushing the team to estimate. I was asking them, "Come on, guys, we need to estimate better." At that time, in two thousand four, many of our, our listeners probably will not remember, but at that time. We were estimating stories and we were estimating tasks under those stories. Yeah. That's how we did it back then. Yeah. And of course, I understood at some point the team said, look, Vasco, I understand you want the numbers, but we don't use them for anything. So do we really need to do this? Yeah. Can't we just break down the story and that's it? And that's eventually what we ended up doing. I used the historical data to project our future delivery we uh -huh. were exactly on time with the exact features we said would be live. Uh, we had three releases in one and a half years, which was also something new for a new product in that yeah. particular company. Uh, it was a bit far from continuous delivery, though. <laughs> but but there you go. Like that that was a, a seminal project and and a foundational project for my own understanding of agile. And at the same time, it was the best team I ever worked with. Oh, super cool. Super cool. So what were, what were some of the other behaviors uh, that that team engaged in? So you had Scrum by the book, you had, you had no estimates, uh, you had the co-location, cross-functional. What, what was some of the other stuff that, that went on? Okay, so uh, um, in my own podcast, a lot of people have talked about the book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Yep. It's a very short book. It's a fable. It's very easy to read. But there's one thing that stuck with me forever since I read that book. The, I read the book way after this project I'm talking about. So I didn't rationalize it then, but I do that now, which is that this team, they held each other accountable. Uh, I want to tell a short story yeah. about this. There's this new guy. He joins the team. You know, the rest of the team is, is happy with this guy. They think he's good. He's, you know, technically competent. He works hard, but he's got a problem. And we have one retrospective and the team basically turns to this guy, let's call him Jeff, turns to Jeff and say, Jeff, we're tired of your CVS bombs. And for <laughs> those of you who don't know, CVS is the version control system. And a CVS bomb, uh, CVS is, is a um, you know, pessimistic, uh, pessimistic locking version control system, which means that if you're editing the file, no one else can edit the file. Right. And this guy, he kept the files in his machine for like two to three weeks. Oh, God. And then he committed all the changes at the same time. And then you got what all developers listening to us will understand immediately. You got into merge hell. Yeah. Right. And the team turns to this guy and said, Jeff, we're tired of the CVS bombs. Could you please commit 
every day or two instead of every two or three weeks, uh-huh. right? And and uh, of course, the guy could have become uh, could have been offended by this or whatever, but he wasn't. He said, "Okay, guys, I'll I'll try my best, but I'll probably need help." And then they did it together, right? They held each other accountable. I think that was perhaps one of the most important uh, behaviors uh, uh, that I've learned from that team is that yeah. it's, it wasn't me holding them accountable. Heck, I couldn't care less what they were doing with CVS. I wasn't coding, yeah. right? But they cared. Yeah. And they held each other accountable. So h- holding each other accountable to the uh, promise you know, that, that this person who we're calling Jeff made to the rest of the team. And... You you also said um, you you didn't, you didn't say it explicitly, but they had the ability to to talk to each other and feel safe and, and tell each other when something wasn't going wrong. They they had this ability to 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 point out conflicts and to and to resolve them. Uh, we we had a very interesting mix of cultures in that team. So we had a uh-huh. very outspoken Finnish salesperson, which is rare to have a Finnish, <laughs> but we had one. And and she complained about everything she didn't like. Uh-huh. Uh, and sometimes the conversations were hard, but we were able to collaborate. We had a very talkative Irish. And you know how talkative the Irish can be? Well, double <laughs> that. That's how talkative he was. And uh, we had a bunch of Finns that, although they were much more silent, they weren't afraid of conflict. When they disagreed, right. they just said, nah, I don't agree with that. Yeah. Right, so I I think that this was also a a good mix of personalities. Yeah, yeah, cool. And and you you bring back memories, uh, some of my memories about how how interesting it is working with a, a multinational, multicultural group of people. And 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 how 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 I don't know joyous it is. It's it's really fantastic to to work with people from all these different backgrounds, different ways of thinking, and behaving together. Although it can be problematic if the the particular personalities are not compatible. Like yeah, in, in this specific team, they they weren't they had no problem in in criticizing each other because they mm-hmm. understood they were all trying to get the best out of what they were doing, and uh, it, it wasn't the the criticism wasn't taken personally. I bet people weren't necessarily happy about it, but it wasn't taken personally. Yeah. Hey, I have another question about um, your your one word, flow, and how that relates to Scrum. Sometimes people look at Scrum and they think it's it's discrete, like like these events at the beginning and the end of the sprint. They kind of disrupt the the workflow or the the, the the group's thinking flow. So, do you have any opinion about that? Yeah. So, um, I don't see anything wrong with working in Kanban. Uh, I I think that if if that works for you. That's great. Um, these days, I would advocate for one-week sprints rather uh-huh. than two-week sprints. Uh, it makes the the planning conversations much easier. The demos are easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know what we're talking about. You know, there's very good active memory yeah. uh, because everything is within one week. There's no break in the flow. Right. But I do have to say that I am a big fan of cycles and and by cycle like there's a clear beginning and there's a clear end and the clear end for me is important because when i go home on friday i feel i have achieved something 
Right. I don't need to worry about the story that isn't yet delivered that I need to deliver on Tuesday or Wednesday next week. I can feel that I have accomplished something and it, it cleans me off this over mental overhead of things that are hanging and not finished that I left at work mm -hmm. on Friday. So for me, uh, the, the, the combination of weekly cycles and this clear uh, marked boundaries between beginning and end of the cycle are very important. Uh, mm. That's a personal preference, of course. So yeah. I, I think you can have extremely good flow in Scrum that does not feel disruptive at all. Okay, nice. And 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 as you talk about week-long sprints and uh, finishing up by Friday, you, you, you literally mean start on Monday, end on Friday. Uh, other teams have a practice of starting on, say, Wednesday, ending on Tuesday. I don't like to break natural flow, okay. natural cycles. And the Monday to Friday cycle is just so natural, mm -hmm. right? People come in on Monday. Everybody's kind of, you know, their head is in the air. They're fuzzy about what to do next. We get together, we do the planning. Boom, we got everybody on the same page and now we start rolling. Yeah, yeah, great idea. Uh, so let's add on to that. What, what other advice do you have for listeners? How could they take the example of of your pioneers team and this, this sensation of, of flow, uh, what else can they do to reproduce that team's success? Um, okay, there's one secret sauce here. Uh, all of what I said so far was absolutely true, but there was something else I haven't talked about, uh, at least not directly. The team had direct feedback from potential customers. Ah. So they, they were... You know, they were presenting their product to customers, potential customers at that time, because the product didn't exist before. Um, they were getting feedback. They were putting that feedback back into the product. They were mm -hmm. actually iterating. You know, the, the whole idea uh, of iterating software development, that iterative software development, that's exactly what we were doing. And most teams these days, they don't do that, right? They, right. they do the sprints, but they do like 20 sprints and then they show something to a customer. That's right. not iterating. That, that's no way to get feedback. And of course, that creates a lot of uh, emotional debt because when you show something to a customer, if it works, you're like, awesome, let's build on it. If, if it doesn't work, you go like, okay, why doesn't it work? What do we need to change? There's no emotional debt of being like, you know, working for half a year and then the last month of the project is coming and you go like, oh, will they like it? Is this yeah. going to be good? Whatever. Like, so for me, that was an extremely important part. The product owner was part of the team. It was not an external. It was not a chicken. It was a pig, right? <laughs> Looking back at the old scrum joke, yeah. the product owner was as committed to the product as the team. The product owner was building a new business that didn't exist if there were no sales there would be no success, right? Right. So the team was part of creating a new product and they really felt that they owned the creation of that new product. And I think that was, for me, it was the secret sauce. We were not working for an abstract uh, and possibly monolithic massive product backlog. We were actually getting feedback all the time. We were uh, cleaning the backlog, taking stuff out, doing things we didn't think about mm -hmm. doing before as a result of that feedback. Genius, like, like you said before, kind of just doing scrum by the book. Exactly. 
Uh, okay, so do scrum by the book. <laughs> what other advice do you have for listeners? Well, it depends on what book you read. All right. So All right. Let, let's be well, clear. I'm, I'm talking about the, Agile Software Development with Scrum, the old, the first Scrum book by Schwaber yeah. and Beetle. Don't do the one-month sprints, though. That's that's out the door already. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. <laughs> <laughs> One-week sprints. Well, yeah, 30 days or less per sprint. Um, what, what else, what else could listeners take away from your experience with that pioneers team? Um, so the understanding that, uh, customers and market access to customers and market is, uh, a fundamental, um, need of teams. If you want Mm -hmm. them to contribute, right. If, If you just want code monkeys, it's okay. You don't need to give them access to the customer or the market. But at that, time, at that time, we created a team that was a creative ensemble, right? It's like a jazz band. They saw the customer in front of them. They saw each other and they just jammed. Oh, I love that. And they jammed really well. I love that. I love that analogy. Like if you're a musician on stage, you get the feedback. What, what, what songs, what riffs are people driving to? Uh, what, what works tonight? Maybe we'll do more of that tomorrow night. What doesn't work? Maybe we'll drop that. What we'll actually iterate. We'll, we'll change our song list. We'll change our backlog for each night. Yeah. Cool. Inspect and adapt. Inspect and adapt, which is what every good band does. And people in performing arts have figured this out. (laughs) Indeed. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, there's one, one story I wanted to share. <clears throat> now, I've talked about how this team was, you know, holding themselves accountable and how they, they felt responsible for the, the creation they were putting together, the new product. But there was something else in this team. They, it was the first team that was truly autonomous. And I want to tell this uh-huh. story because it, I think it's quite illustrative of what autonomy can be. Uh, at some point in, you know, a few months into the project, we had to move rooms to a new floor and to a new room. The, the new room was... Uh, different than the original room, so we couldn't just copy the layout. And the original, uh, the the you know the common temptation is to ask the people responsible for the, for the building, you know, just you know prepare a room for us. Here's how many desks we need, blah blah blah. But the team said, no, we'll do the room ourselves. And they actually did, as part of their work, they planned the room, they organized the desks in the best way they saw fit. And they, uh, you know, they actually assembled the room themselves, yeah. physically put the desks in the right place. And they came, came up with a layout that uh, every time I think about the, that layout, I, I have to ask myself, why isn't anyone else doing this? Here's the layout. They had a developer station. There were four desks turned towards each other. Remember how the cubicles prevent face-to-face and eye yeah. contact? They settled. They they set the desk so that they could see each other in the face uh-huh. all the time. So they they could see the 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 feelings the other people were experiencing. You know the feelings of doubt. Uh, maybe a question is coming, or uh, they could see who they were talking to. Right. And mm-hmm. then we had another table which was set completely different. It was like a long table where you could come in and sit. Even you know people that were not in the team. They were just visiting they could come in and sit. But that table, which was the long table, had uh, a designer, a front-end developer, and a tester. 
and they were not far from each other. There was a clear division between the work, and that's expected because they do different work. So, but they were not far from each other. But the the way the the room and and then there was another part which was a, a table with a whiteboard where they got together and they had their daily standups and they had their design meetings and and so on and so forth. This was all in one room, and we had uh, I think it was seven people when we started. It it grew up to nine or ten people later in a room that would have been enough for six to seven people mm-hmm. if it were laid out as originally planned. We had access to the windows, which we would not have had access to if the room was laid out as originally planned. And get this, they figured out the exact layout of the desk so that they wouldn't get window glare on their screens. (laughs) Every developer's dream. (laughs) And they did that themselves, right? There's no way that somebody who's just putting the desks there would have thought about that. No, No way, no way. That's um, how funny. autonomy can be so powerful for a team. Autonomy. Okay, so that that's that's perfect. And as we were talking, my my, my wife walked in, gave me a kiss goodbye. Um, I don't I don't know if I will have edited that out of the podcast or not. Uh, but this is something that people who don't write code, like you're saying, like people who would set up the furniture, they actually don't understand. Molly is always always wondering why I have the lights off when I'm sitting with the computer, <laughs> like. Why don't you have the lights on? Don't don't you want to feel happy? I'm like, oh, I feel so happy right now that there's no glare on my screen. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So I, I know you're working on a lot of projects, Fashko. Um, what, what, can you tell us a little bit about your projects and and anything else? Like, how how can listeners contact you? Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. That's Duarte underscore Vasco, and I'm sure the links will be on the show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also ping me on LinkedIn. Um, but there's only one project I want to talk about, and it's yep. also a podcast on which you have been. So if you want to uh, hear Richard on the other side <laughs> of the mic, uh, go to scrummastertoolbox.org. That's the name of the podcast, Scrum Master Toolbox Podcast, or or just fetch it from uh, from iTunes. And uh, we've been recording since 2015. Woo! So that's, that's now four years, and every week there's been a show. So let, let me just uh, look at my day to tell you how many... Uh, four week- years of weekly podcasts. That's incredible. And it's not just weekly. It's like every weekday there's a new show. Four years of almost daily podcasts. Yeah, so we've recorded 218 shows, uh, and we've published now 210. Incredible. So prolific library of podcasts that you've recorded and shared with the world. And with real practitioners talking about their real stories, what they've learned and what they still use now, right? So there's an element of what actually works over time rather than what I like today. Yeah, and I, and I love, um, so here, this conversation we just had, I love that you orient things around these stories. And, and also when I was a guest on your podcast, I loved how you guided me to tell stories. So you've got 200 something episodes, four years worth of almost daily episodes about people telling concrete stories about what they've done. It's, it's really great stuff. Actually, it is 1,050 episodes. Oh my god! Ten weeks. Oh my god! <laughs> I, I I bow before you. <laughs> about Scrum right now. 
It's incredible. It's incredible. All right, Vashka. Thank you very much. I know it's late there where you are. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Hi, friends. Thanks for listening. And remember, to support this podcast, sign up for my newsletter at kasparowski.com. <laughs>